So as many of you all know, I am the uh, liturgical officer for the diocese. Um, This is something that Bishop Orgy bestowed upon me pretty early on into my time as the rector here at All Saints. And he did this because he knew that All Saints is is very intentional about having a beautiful approach to liturgy. We don't do things haphazard. We try to make sure we know what we're doing. And uh, that this is uh, something for which I do have a passion in terms of studying as well. Um, In fact, I have memories of sitting in Episcopal churches as a child, either my grandparents' church or uh, when we'd go, when when my father would be bringing us to the Episcopal church, flipping through the prayer book and pondering the contents. I have a very specific memory when I was about Leah's age, my daughter Leah's age, maybe a little bit younger, um, comparing the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed in the prayer book and trying to figure out why we use the Nicene Creed on Sunday but never the Apostles' Creed. Um, I didn't bother to ask anybody. I just sat, sat around thinking about it. So I didn't actually find the reason until I was an adult. But uh, that's, that's what you get for not asking, I guess. Um, we do have, of course, a wealth of prayers at our fingertips. Prayers that enrich our understanding of God, enrich our understanding of the church. And prayers that are some of the most beautiful prose in the English language. For my money, today's collect, the collect for the 12th Sunday after Trinity, is one of the best of those prayers. So let's look at that, that our collect this morning. We prayed. Almighty and everlasting God, who are always more ready to hear than we to pray and are wont to give more than either we desire or deserve, pour down upon us the abundance of thy mercy, forgiving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, thy son, our Lord, Amen. So God is indeed always ready to hear us, even when we're not ready to talk to him. As much as I know the value of prayer, how often do I find myself reluctant to come before his throne of grace? Maybe I'm bothered by my own sin and I find myself ashamed to seek the Lord. Or perhaps I've got a lot on my plate and don't want to take the time to do the office. Or perhaps I deceive myself and say, I'll get to it later, full well knowing that later is not going to come. This time it's going to be different. Later really will come this time. No, it won't. Perhaps frivolous distractions like the Facebook or Twitter feeds have grabbed my attention and I'd rather get the dopamine hit of doom scrolling or checking for new likes rather than getting true nourishment for my soul. And I dare say that just about all of us have had similar experience and can say the same to one extent or the other. All of us know what it's like to seek lesser goods rather than the ultimate good. Yet God is merciful. God does love to hear our prayers despite our unworthiness. God's goodness is constant despite our fickleness. In his commentary on this collect, a liturgical historian, Massey Shepherd, wrote this. He writes, A sense of unworthiness often detours us from our prayers, even makes us afraid of it. Yet it's only through prayer that our sins may be forgiven. And more than that, an abundance of mercy beyond our imagining awaits those seeking him who is ever ready to hear and pardon. Very true. Incidentally, uh, uh, one, one of our uh, parishioners at, at the first service said, oh yeah, I knew Massey Shepherd. We, uh, I studied under him for a while back in the 70s. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Well, 
I have been um, doing my own readings for the offices from the 1662 lectionary, daily lectionary. Um, we're going to be starting to use that in our public offices starting next year. Um, and part of that's because I like that it has whole chapters. I like that it covers a lot more of the Bible. It doesn't skip around very much. It does things in canonical order. We get a really good diet of scripture using the old lectionary. And the week before last, our Old Testament lessons took us on a whirlwind tour of the prophet Ezekiel. In a bit of an atypical mood for this lectionary, we covered 48 chapters in about five days. Well, that's because we didn't cover 48 chapters, right? <laughs> and I was pretty disappointed, to be honest, that uh, the lectionary cut out most of the apocalyptic chapters with their fun and odd imagery in them, like Ezekiel's will within a wheel, angelic visions. He has several of those, not just chapter one, by the way. Or uh, the Valley of Dry Bones. I mean, how do you leave out the Valley of Dry Bones? But I did find it fascinating that what, what was included, what was the focus in that abridgment, that rare abridgment for that lectionary, it really focused on God's very pointed statements about the importance of repentance. We read several chapters that reminded us that God will not punish a righteous man for his father's sins, nor will he cut a wicked man slack just because he had a righteous father. Um, and and you know, in a culture that's so family-oriented, that often would come as a surprise, right? So you, you know, that, 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 that's not the way they might have thought about things. But we read, for example, in, in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, this very famous passage, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But he doesn't leave us there. We're also told throughout these chapters that the formerly righteous man who apostatizes into wickedness is going to be counted as wicked. But the formerly wicked man who repents, who changes his ways, is going to be counted as a righteous man. And after all, in the same chapter, chapter 18, God goes on to say, have I any pleasure at all in the that the wicked should die? And not that he should return from his ways and live. I don't get anything for the wicked man dying. I'd much rather he repent, right? And this is very encouraging, isn't it? But it's also very sobering. We see that we do have the responsibility to turn from our sins and to continue walking in obedience to the Lord and to his law. I dare say that we all know folks who have been radically changed by the gospel and come to the Lord, who have turned from a life of destruction and into a life of faithfulness. But on the other side of the coin, we also know many folks who have walked away from the faith. That is indeed a very sobering thought. It speaks highly of our responsibility as Christians. I'm reminded of some of the verses from our first lesson at Matins this morning, at morning prayer, from the apocryphal book of Ecclesiasticus, in which we read Ben Sirach writing, Say not thou, it is through the Lord that I fell away, for thou oughtest not to do the things that he hateth. Before man is life and death, and whether him liketh shall be given him. He hath commanded no man to do wickedly, 
neither hath he given any man license to sin. We do have responsibility before the Lord. Even as our articles of religion affirm St. Augustine's doctrine of election, which says that God chooses us for life when we're his, we don't affirm the perverse corollary that God is somehow responsible if we choose sin over him. God is not the author of evil. That's why we should go to the Lord in prayer the way that our colleague says. It's true that we're unworthy. It's true that we fall into sin. Yet God offers us mercy. Yes, he offers us abundant mercy beyond anything that we can imagine if we would just seek him. Our collect also tells us how God offers this mercy. It says that this mercy comes through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, thy son, our Lord. Amen. That is, our Lord Jesus is the one through whom this mercy is offered, first by his merits, but secondly by his mediation. So in terms of his merits, Scripture tells us that we cannot earn God's mercy. After all, earned mercy isn't really mercy. It wouldn't be mercy if we earned it. God does not tally up our good deeds and our bad deeds and put them both on a scale and see which one weighs more. That's not the way it works. That's the way we think it ought to work. But that's not the way that it works. Our little sins condemn us just as much as our big ones. And so we read in Article 11 of our 39 Articles of Religion, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. That last line is referring to the two books of homilies. One was written during the time of uh, Edward VI, the second one during the time of Elizabeth. The first one is mostly Archbishop Cranmer's work, the second one mostly Bishop John Jewell. Uh, both very good stuff, but um, I recently reread that homily on justification, the one by Archbishop Cranmer, and in it he begins by exegeting St. Paul's writings on this issue. He follows it with support from the church fathers, uh, the ancient fathers and doctors, as it says, um, both of the East and the West, to show that it is Christ's merits and not ours that earn our salvation. Our part, it says, is to put our trust, our faith in Christ for that salvation. And then Archbishop Cranmer goes on to remind us that this justification, this declaration of righteousness by faith does not give us license to sin, but rather it spurs us on to live righteously because of that justification. And in our articles of religion, if we go on to number 12 and following, we see that they say the same thing. We don't take Article 11, we don't take justification by faith as an island. There's always... There's always more to unpack about that, not to diminish our faith, but rather because it's not ever a faith that's alone. We may be justified by faith only, but it's not a faith that is alone, if that makes sense. We have a responsibility to walk in God's ways rather than our own. We have a responsibility as Christians to live lives characterized by God's law but that obedience flows out of our trust in Christ and in his merits rather than trusting in our own. And that's then where Christ's mediation comes into play. So his merits are what brings us into fellowship. But he also does this by his mediation. 
As the epistle to the Hebrews tells us, our Lord Jesus in his perfect and glorified humanity is our high priest before the Father. He is constantly praying for us, constantly interceding for us, acting as the bridge between God and us. And since he's the only one who's both God and man, he is in the unique position to be our high priest, to speak to God on our behalf and to speak to us on God's. And indeed, it's through our Lord Jesus that God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we would then be enabled to walk in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. The Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirits as he makes us holy, as he sanctifies us through the word and through the sacrament. We're changed by the ministry of the Holy Ghost so that we are more and more resembling our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in today's epistle, St. Paul contrasts the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. He calls the Old Covenant the ministration of death and the ministration of condemnation, but he calls the New Covenant the ministration of the Spirit and the ministration of righteousness. He notes that both come with exceeding glory. But there is a sense that the glory of the Old Covenant inspires terror as much as it inspires awe. Why is this? Because the law always accuses. The very perfection of the law shows us the sinfulness of our sin. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with me and you. So when I read those passages in Ezekiel, or those common sense warnings in Ben Sirach in Ecclesiasticus, it's not always a comfort. Because deep down I know that I am the soul who sins, and thus I deserve death. And as Ben Sirach reminds us, I got no one to blame but me. This is why we need the new covenant. The new covenant, by contrast, is a comfort. Because it's based on Christ's merits rather than on our merits. And because of that, because of the ministration of the Spirit, I do indeed become righteous. I'm justified, declared righteous because of Christ, but I'm also enabled to live righteously because I've been indwelt with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And speaking of his own ministry in our passage today, St. Paul says that God also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. So the idea here is that God has enabled his ministers to do what needs to be done as bishops, priests, and deacons. The call to be a minister of the gospel is too great to do it on our own strength, so we need God's help. The same is true for all the Christian life. That's why we pray for a strengthening of those gifts of the Spirit and confirmation. As our Offices of Instruction says, confirmation is the church's gift to enable us to live up to our bounden duty, which is to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, and to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. Now, in today's gospel, we read our Lord's miracle of healing the deaf mute. Jesus touched his ears and his tongue. Jesus prayed to the Father and then said to the man, Ephatha, be opened. One of my brother priests and I, we were musing as to whether that Aramaic word, Ephatha, may be something of an ironic onomatopoeia. It sounds like someone's trying to speak but stumbling over the words. <laughs> Nevertheless, the, the, our passage says, the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain. In the same way, through his merits and mediation, our Lord Jesus opens our ears and tongues 
so that we can indeed hear the Lord and we can come to him in prayer and in praise. In our collect, we noted that God is wont to give more than either we desire or deserve. The promises of the gospel are indeed bigger than we can imagine. We deserve death because of our sins. Indeed, we deserve damnation because of them. But God has instead offered us fellowship with him through our prayers. God has offered us new life in his spirit. Indeed, he's offered him himself through union with his son, in whose name we come boldly to God's throne. We say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.